0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. As you know from my recent conversation with Star Trek actor Walter Koenig, I am a proud member of the Board of Advisors for the Nichelle Nichols Foundation. A few months ago, I had the opportunity to host one of the Foundation's Hailing Frequencies Open events— a panel about my favorite subjects in the universe, exploring strange new worlds and seeking out new life. Today, we're going to play the audio from that panel right here on Strange New Worlds. This panel featured Tim Russ, the actor who played Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager. Tim is also a super knowledgeable amateur astronomer and citizen scientist, The panel also has Dr. Kayla Iacovino, a researcher at NASA Johnson Space Center who studies volcanoes and magmatic processes here on Earth and on other worlds. In this presentation, you'll also hear the voice of Marion Smothers, Nichelle Nichols' sister and the president of the Nichelle Nichols Foundation. Marion helps me kick off the panel and then returns at the very end. So, without further ado, Hailing Frequencies Open. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Hailing Frequencies Open, presented by the Nichelle Nichols Foundation. I'm Mike Wong, and it is my honor to be your host today. I'm a planetary scientist and an astrobiologist at the Carnegie Institution for Science's Earth and Planets Laboratory in Washington, D.C. I'm also the host of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, and I'm a lifelong Trekkie. I'm a fan of the entire Star Trek universe, but the most special show to me is the one that I grew up watching, Star Trek Voyager. So it's my true pleasure to be joined today by Tim Russ. You probably know Tim as the actor who brought to life Lieutenant Commander Tuvok in all seven seasons of Star Trek Voyager, and more recently Captain Tuvok in the third season of Star Trek Picard. What you may not know is that Tim is also an amateur astronomer, a member of the Los Angeles Astronomical Society, and a contributor to Griffith Observatory and the Planetary Society. Thanks for joining us, Tim.
1: My pleasure, thank you for having me.
0: Today we are also joined by Dr. Kayla Iacovino, a volcanologist, meaning that she studies volcanoes, not Vulcans, at NASA's Johnson Space Center. In addition to being a scholar, Kayla is a fantastic science communicator who has appeared on NPR, PBS Nova, the BBC, CNN, and a humble little podcast called Strange New Worlds. Kayla is also on the editorial staff for TrekMovie.com, your one-stop shop for Star Trek news. I'm so excited to speak with you again, Kayla.
2: Excited to be here.
0: Great. Well, today, Tim, Kayla, and I are going to talk about our mutual passions for outer space, exploring strange new worlds, and seeking out new life. But before we get to that, we have a very special message from Marion Smothers, the chairman and president of the Nichelle Nichols Foundation. Marion, please take it away.
3: Thank you so very much, and thank you all for being here. It's good to see you again, Kayla, and so nice to meet you, Tim. Yes, nice to meet you as well. Absolutely, yes, I'm excited to be here. We've had uh, some things that happened in the last couple of weeks that uh, we're really excited about. We finally got our designation for 501C3. So uh, since we have that designation now, we've created two partnerships and I'm gonna just briefly tell you about them first. We're now a partnership with an organization called Benevity. It's a platform that thousands of companies, corporations use for their employees who want to contribute part of their earnings to charitable contributions. So if your company uses Benevity platform, they'll match 100% for whatever your donation is. It's a great way to donate, so please check to see if your organization, if your company rather, uses Benevity for their platform. Also, we are now an approved nonprofit with Microsoft. They have a search engine, you may be aware of it, called Bing. If you go on to givebing.com, you can go in and make the Nichelle Nichols Foundation, your charitable contribution. And every time you use Bing as a search engine, you rack up points. Now the points will convert into cash money for your contribution to the Nichelle Nichols Foundation if you sign us up as your charitable contribution. Again, these are great ways to donate. It helps us a lot. And it helps us to be able to do what we are very ambitious program that we are trying to do with the Nichelle Nichols Foundation. So thank you all for being here. I'm excited to hear from you and hear your stories. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Marion. I am really, really proud to be associated with the Nichelle Nichols Foundation and all of the good work that it does, increasing accessibility to um, space and the space sciences for everyone. So let's get on to our Q&A with our panelists, Tim and Kayla. First question is for you, Tim. For many years, of course, your day job was to portray a character on Star Trek whose mission is to explore strange new worlds. But then you'd go home and spend your nights looking up at the night sky through your telescopes. Tim, how did you get into astronomy? And what is it about outer space that speaks to your soul?
1: Well, um, I started uh, pursuing astronomy as a hobby pretty much out of the blue about 35 years ago, Um, I just decided i was sitting around decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get a small telescope and take a look at uh, the planets because they were visible within the city, uh, along with the moon and and I had never really owned a decent telescope in my, uh, in my life. So I thought, well, I'm going to go out to find one that's really, you know, a starter sort of telescope that I can actually see the planets on and sort of got started doing that. And then I decided I wanted to learn the night sky at the time, there were no computerized consumer telescopes that were available, so everything was manual, and you had to you had to actually know what you were looking for and and what you were looking at using books and and charts and things like that. So I did that, and I just I was just I was always fascinated with space uh, science to begin with. Um, I was a fan of science fiction, also science as a study for years. So I decided just to be hands on with it and start looking at the planets and the moon initially, and then eventually. Uh, deep sky objects, uh, because, of course, once you started down that road of buying telescopes, you just keep going and, you know, you end up with seven or eight of them before you know what happened. So um, and this was years before Voyager. I just became I was always interested in it and I decided to pursue it as a hobby uh, pretty much on my own. And uh, and later on, I got to meet other people who were also interested. But it was just something I did. and, uh, And and it's still going very strong today. And it's coincidental that I ended up on a show, obviously, playing a character who is uh, in a sci-fi space type series uh just it's just coincidence that it happened that way.
0: Yeah, I resonate so much with that because um <clears throat> I actually decided to major in planetary science in college when uh, I took a field trip with one of my classes to the Lick Observatory and looking through that giant 36-inch refractor telescope, this this very intricate telescope that, like you said, you had to slew by hand, you had to know what you were looking for. And being able to peer through that scope at Jupiter and its four largest moons, what we call the Galilean satellites, that image just hitting my eyeballs through that magnificent scope really persuaded me uh, to go Uh into the space sciences. That was a magical moving experience for me. I was wondering if you could describe some of the emotions that you feel when you look at some of your favorite astronomical objects.
1: Well, the very first one that I looked at was uh, through the telescope eyepiece was Saturn. And I was just blown away to be able to see the detail on that uh, planet with relatively small telescope uh, at the time. And continuing on, it's still one of my favorite objects to look at because it's very easy to see, obviously, in the city. And you can really delineate the detail on it, even some of the cloud bands, when you've got a nice still night and a a decent sized scope to look at it with. Uh, right now, I'm working with what's uh, called the Unistellar, uh, EV Scope. Uh, the company Unistellar makes it. And they have a wonderful, basically a consumer level imaging telescope. It's all everything built into one. You don't have to have a lot of accessories and parts and pieces and things like that. And it's part telescope and part sort of an imaging processor. So it looks at objects, deep sky, that, and it layers the light from those objects so that the objects become brighter and brighter and they're easier to see. And these are deep sky objects, things like nebulas and galaxies. And you can see them from the city uh, as well with the city lights, it filters the city lights out also. And so now my favorite objects to look at are the deep sky objects, uh, the galaxies in particular, um, the Whirlpool galaxy being one, that's really been uh, some of my favorite things to view today. And that's only because of the technology that's now available to people to uh, to get into. And uh, and relatively simple to uh, operate, because I prefer uh, the learning curve to be that of a, a rock with a light switch. I like it that simple, you know. <laughs> uh, so I'm very, very happy to be able to see the deep sky objects, some of the things that they're showing now. Some of those objects have been taken with this telescope. Within three or four minutes,
0: by the way. That's yeah. that's just wonderful. As a planetary scientist, I'll try not to hold it against you that you traded a planet for galaxies <laughs> as your favorite astronomical <laughs> objects. <laughs> Kayla, you traverse the globe not looking up at the stars, but actually at the rocks beneath your feet. As a scientist, why is it essential to understand our very own planet, Earth, if we were to truly understand our place in the universe?
2: So I'm a geologist, and like you said, I study volcanoes in particular, but all kinds of magmatic processes. And when we're thinking about things on a planetary scale that ranges from a volcano to planet formation itself... So from the earliest formation period of our solar system, we started out with a bunch of things colliding together, creating these molten worlds where we had literally what we call magma oceans. There's a planetary stage where the entire surface of a planet is molten lava, and then you know all the planet evolves from there. So all of these processes I study have to do with everything from the earliest planet formation to how planets are resurfaced, and a lot of my background is I I work now um, at NASA Johnson Space Center with Jacobs studying more and more planetary things earlier in my career for the first 10 years of my career, I was mostly focused on earth geology Earth volcanoes. And I think it's important to have both perspectives um, more and more we're getting people who are more specialized in the, the space aspect of things you know back in the day of the Apollo missions all of those scientists were earth geologists we didn't have moon rocks at the time we didn't have specialists like that and so i think having that dual perspective is really important and the great thing about earth is that it's easy to access relative to other planets Hmm. so we can get a ton of information a ton of data we can go pick up a rock there are plenty of planets in our solar system that we don't have rocks from for example, Mercury or Venus, we don't have any uh, meteorites from those places. We have meteorites from Mars and meteorites from the moon and rocks from the moon. But these other places we rely on observations from satellites and telescopes. Telescopic observations have been a, a huge way we collect data. Um, and so we're getting all of these you know, photons uh, hitting the, the earth and, and we're collecting this data in light, essentially. But how do we understand what that means in terms of what the rocks are made of, how they got there, how they evolved to that point. And when we have earth as our analog, we can go out, we can pick up the rock and see, well, okay, what kind of, you know, light does this emit if we shine an infrared laser at it or a UV laser at it. And so using earth as this sort of baseline of understanding is really critical to interpret any of the data we get from outer space. And the other reason it's, you know, there's like you can ask the question two ways, because a lot of people say, well, why, do we spend money studying outer space? We have so many problems here on earth, right? My first answer to that is that the two are not mutually exclusive. You know, we live in a society where we're lucky enough to live in a society where we can do such esoteric things as science at all. Um, And we can do both space and the earth. And the reason we wanna look to space is because that tells us where our place is in the universe. Our only data point in terms of life, for example, is the earth. It's the only place we've found life, but what does that mean? Is it unique? You know, is there other life? Or are is the evolution of life inevitable on typical planetary surfaces, or is, is this a fluke? Is this you know, lightning catching lightning in a bottle? Is this super rare? And where are we on the spectrum of possible life forms that exist in the entire universe? So both perspectives, I think, are, are really critical for just again understanding our place in the universe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think most people think about volcanoes as these scary things that are very detrimental to life. You wouldn't want to be near a volcano when it went off. But could you just briefly explain why we think volcanoes would be essential, uh, an essential part of a habitable planet an Earth like planet?
2: Yeah, so um, with the recent data coming back from the James Webb Space Telescope, which is like Hubble's successor, We're able to capture all these data from really far off exoplanets planets outside of our solar system and volcanoes have become this big thing in the exoplanet world, which I think is awesome. uh, Because volcanoes are the things that deliver all kinds of chemistry from the inside of a planet to its outside. So if you have a planet without volcanism, it has that magmosis stage it cools and sort of freezes and then it's done that's it. If you have volcanism, that surface of the planet is continually being recycled. So nutrients that, that life needs to thrive gets recycled onto the earth so it can be reused by nutrients, and atmospheres get produced. We put things like water, carbon, sulfur, all these things into atmospheres of planets. And so, you know, we kind of have to pick some feature to say, well, maybe there will be life there, right? We'd, we'd like to narrow down Uh, our field. And so uh, exoplanet researchers are trying to find signatures of volcanism, chemical signatures of volcanism and atmospheres of exoplanets. So they look for things like sulfur or water or some thick atmosphere around an exoplanet. And that's sort of the first hint that, okay, maybe we should look more at this planet because we know it has an atmosphere. There are chemicals that indicate there's this volcanic recycling activity. So maybe um, Earth or maybe life could could thrive there.
0: Yeah, you might say, no Vulcans without Vulcanism.
2: Exactly, <laughs> new catchphrase. So
0: Tim, in 2021, you and five other citizen scientists were credited with aiding NASA in the detection of Patroclus, one of the Trojan asteroids orbiting the planet Jupiter. Tell me a little bit about this really cool work, and what does it mean to you to have contributed to solar system exploration?
1: Well, um, I was invited to participate in this mission, as it were, and, and there have been uh, some missions that have followed that that have been very similar. They're doing them now, again, sort of on a semi-regular basis because of the citizen science program with, again, the telescope that I have. I could not have done it without you know, using this uh, piece of equipment, the, the Unistellar EV scope. So because of this scope is able to track asteroids, we were able to do the occultation, which is the asteroid crossing in front of a star. And uh, NASA had the Lucy mission, which is on its way to examine the Trojan asteroids. Those are the ones that are within Jupiter's um, um, orbit. And the probe is just going to fly right by them. It's not going to stop in orbit and study them. It's just going to go by them. What they wanted to do was get an idea of the size and shape of these asteroids before the probe got there. So they asked us to do the occultation, which is basically just imaging the asteroid as it crosses in front of a star and the shadow that it casts on Earth. They're able to use that data to get an idea of what the shape of the asteroid was, and it. I did it here, not that far from my house, uh, where I could see that part of the sky. It took about four minutes to get the exposure, and it was done. And, I, and the, the, with the telescope, I send the data to the Unistellar uh, company. They crunch the numbers and they send back the video. And what you get is basically a light curve, which you know shows a level line, and then it drops down, and then it comes back up again when the asteroid crosses in front of the star. And they were able to uh, estimate uh, part of the size and shape of the asteroid just from doing that. And several of us did it across the country, that wherever the path of of that asteroid occultation was taking place. So it was very cool to be able to do that. I had never done anything like that before, and that was absolutely amazing. Consequently, we can also track exoplanets with that telescope as well. Again, it'll take hours to do that, you know, several hours because of the transit of the exoplanet. But it will also create a a light curve showing you when the planet crossed in front of the star and how long it lasts. Uh, It'll do the same thing. So I was very happy to have a chance to participate in that project with them, again, because of this telescope and how easy it was uh, to be able to accomplish that mission.
0: That's so wonderful. Yeah, I was thinking as you were describing the technique for this Trojan asteroid that this is exactly how we detect so many exoplanets out there by the shadows that they cast on their stars. Uh, And this technique, of course, also allows us to peer into their atmospheres, connecting this to what we were talking about with Kayla before, um, detecting exoplanet atmospheres as that starlight filters through the atmosphere and into our telescopes, we're able to pick up the molecular signatures of whatever might be there, CO2, Or uh, Or
1: industrial industrial (laughs) industrial elements that might be done, created artificially? Oh, who knows?
0: (laughs) One day, maybe we will. Yeah, that would be exciting. But um, yeah, also maybe a sign of a planet whose civilization may not be taking too good care of their atmosphere. I wonder if any aliens are looking at us and thinking that very thought right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Wow, that would be absolutely amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. On the day on the day.
0: So Kayla, um, you know, in Star Trek, science is one objective of the Federation, but another is also maintaining galactic peace and harmony. And I know that one of the coolest places that you've gone to do your field work is North Korea, a place where very few Americans have gone. So tell us about your experience doing research in North Korea and whether or not you think that science has a major role to play in building bridges across geopolitical divides.
2: Yeah, well, the answer to your last question is absolutely. So this was a project in Um, the early to mid 2010s. I went there in 2013, part of a big group that I was lucky enough to sort of be added to after about two years of logistical planning had been done. Uh, I was at an institution in the UK at the time. I was at the University of Cambridge, finishing up my PhD, Um, and my PhD advisor and some of his colleagues had been, like I said, spending two years between the UK embassy, uh, the Chinese embassy and the North Korean embassy, working out all of the plans to, to allow us to go there. Um, And the reason that we were going there is because there's a big volcano right on the border between China and North Korea. The political border actually goes right through the crater of the volcano. It's a huge volcano, but very little is known about it because obviously it's really difficult to get to to study. And there was a series of earthquakes beneath the volcano that indicated that it might be moving around again. And people wanted to take a look at that. Um, And so people from within North Korea actually got in contact with the principal investigators of the project, so my supervisor, Clive Oppenheimer, and his colleague, John Hammond, and asked them to, to come and collaborate with them. And so we got a group and went over there, and really, this was a 50-50 operation, 50%, like, let's go do the science, this is amazing access to understand this volcano but very few people have gotten to go to, um, but the other half of it was this um, geo you know policy, basically, this extending an olive branch and seeing if we can't make the relationships between the West and North Korea um, a little bit better. And I think it works really well when you're approaching it from a scientific angle because the idea is that you're all scientists there. We worked with North Korean scientists in the country. We were scientists, we were there for science. There were no flags. You know, we weren't there representing our state government, Uh, we were there not really representing officially anyone, we were there to work together and learn about each other and learn about each other's perspectives. You know, anywhere you go and do field work like that in another country in particular, one of the most crucial things that you learn as a scientist, which they don't really teach in class, is to work with the people who live there, scientists or not because those are the people who are living with that volcano or whatever it is that you're studying. They're the ones who, who are gonna be affected by any of the dangers. They're the ones who are gonna be affected by any of the positive things. And they're the ones who know the history of the area. They know where the best rock outcrops are. Uh, they're very valuable people to, to ally with. Um, and it's, you know, we, we, we wanna avoid um, any kind of imperialistic attitude when we go to other people's countries. We are a guest there. And so I really learned a lot about that side of doing science, being there. There's nothing like being in another country or being in another culture to start to glean some understanding of why they are the way they are, why they view the world in a, through a certain lens. You know, what are they seeing on television? What uh, is it like to eat in a restaurant? Um, what is it like to walk down one of their streets? What is the weather like? All of these different things are kind of making these people who they are. And using science to do that, like I said, it it kind of releases the tension on some expectation of a political partnership or worrying about the response of a government. Um, And you can really just get to know people and focus on working together.
0: As you were describing your your experience in North Korea, I kept on thinking, wow, uh, this is prime material for a Star Trek episode, you know, maybe some some kind of a story where there is a strange anomaly inside of Klingon space or Romulan space. And the Federation has to, you know, go and scientifically try to help understand what is going on. But at the same time, tell the story about building bridges, understanding truly who those other people are and trying to, uh, you know, walk in their shoes for a, a little bit and, and understand their perspectives.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's pretty pure Star Trek right there.
0: So Starfleet's mission is not just to explore outer space, strange new worlds, but also specifically to seek out new life and new civilizations. So for both of you, what do you think are the most promising locations for looking for new life or search strategies for looking for extraterrestrials? Maybe we'll start with Tim and then go to Caleb.
1: I think the the current plan that we have with uh, the Webb Telescope, and that's looking at exoplanets around other stars they were initially looking at uh, red dwarfs because there are so many more of those stars and they last for so much longer than than the average stars like ours but they were very volatile so that they haven't they've had issues with trying to find a star that's settled in that in that realm so now i think they're looking more at uh, stars that are like our own sun where the goldilocks zone might be a little bit more narrow but the star would be stable and give the planet a chance to i think that's the way to go i think that's the, what they're doing right now is analyzing the atmospheres of these planets because if we can go through you know hundreds or thousands of these planets and be able to analyze their atmosphere i think i think that's going to be the easiest and quickest way to uh, to identify a planet that may have what is an an industrial civilization signature in the atmosphere Uh, With the chemicals and things like that that they could find. I think that's the the quickest and easiest way to do it You know apart from UAPs
3: (laughs) That the the
1: airports pilots have been identifying, you know apart from that uh, I think that 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 the in terms of just the 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 science of searching. I think that's the best way Uh, my hats off to SETI who is are looking for signals from other uh, planets and civilizations that is one way, but I think the fastest is going to be the James Webb and just looking for planets that have an industrial signature in their atmosphere. I, I believe that we will find that. I don't think it's going to be easy, and I don't think, honestly, in this galaxy, just our galaxy alone, that it's going there are going to be that many, from what I've heard uh, by estimates uh, from astrophysicists and other astrobiologists. And I, you can, I don't know, pitch in on this, but I don't know that there are that many uh, as one might assume in our galaxy, simply because of the odds of life, you know, coming to fruition on a planet and developing into an intelligent civilization or advanced civilization. That not only them being able is to get that point and not destroying themselves and or that, that civilization simply, you know, coming to an end over millions of years um, and no longer being there. I think the odds are they might be a little more thin than what we what we might hope. As Kayla was mentioning earlier, you know, it's possible that we might be very rare in this circumstance in terms of the biology coming together and us developing and evolving into an intelligent species enough to, and a species that can study and explore the universe, as it were.
0: Yeah, I'll just chime in there um, and riff off of some of the things that you mentioned, Tim. That was was a great answer, first of all. I'm a big fan of exoplanetary science and exploration. And of course, JWST, that James Webb Space Telescope, is giving us unprecedented data about planets like you were mentioning, um, a lot of surveys have been targeting these red dwarfs. The reason for that is because that they are the easiest to try to characterize the the planets that orbit them. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, unfortunately, exactly as you said, a lot of these red dwarfs tend to be um, very volatile. So they're sending off these solar flares at frequencies and rates that are uh, just unparalleled uh, for stars like our own sun. And the danger for that is that these Very frequent solar flares could strip away atmospheres from terrestrial planets, planets the size of Earth. There's a particular system called the TRAPPIST-1 system that people may have heard of. It's a fabulous system to study because it has seven roughly Earth-sized planets orbiting a red dwarf. And we're using JWST to now look for atmospheres around those planets. And it looks like, at least for the closest planets orbiting that star, we can't detect any atmosphere. Um, So it's a little bit disappointing, but also points to this perhaps truth that these stars are a little bit too volatile for their planets. Now, the, the, the jury is still out for the farther planets, especially those planets in the habitable zone. But that data is coming. And we're really excited for that. Excellent. Cool. Kayla, how about you?
2: Well, I love that I have a different answer. Um, Yes. (laughs) I think I mean, there's no wrong answer. Every way we look is great. But one of the uh, so I'm thinking about life in general, not necessarily intelligent life. Um, And partly because Let's say we find some signature that we think may be life in an exoplanet. The first hurdle is is verifying that and really um, interpreting that data correctly. And the second one is even if we can really prove it, they're going to be so far away that even communicating with them might be difficult. And I'm greedy, so I want to find life that we can see and maybe even touch. So I'm looking right here in our solar system. I am super hyped about like the Europa Clipper mission. Um, so the, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn both have some promising uh, moons and solidus Europa, these icy worlds that may have a thick ice crust and then potentially a very thick ocean, liquid water ocean underneath, it could be a, a brine, a salty ocean. And if that's true, you know, NASA's motto for decades has been follow the water, because we've we've picked that thing as we know we need that for life on Earth. so. Let's use that as a constraint. Um, So I'm really excited for those missions coming up to look for life here in our own solar system. Maybe even Venus, I'll throw it out there. I know there was the whole um, atmosphere (laughs) thing recently that turned out to be a bit of a bust, but we know so little about Venus. Like we haven't even observed that there's active volcanism on Venus. Like we're pretty sure that there is. I would put money on it, but we haven't had a direct observation of that. And it's like, it's right there. It's easier to get to the Mars, but it's hard to study because, you know, it tends to melt the spacecraft that we <laughs> have on it. And it's difficult to see beneath the clouds. So, but go Venus. Let's have more Venus missions and Europa and Enceladus missions.
1: And you've got underwater, uh, the underwater vents, the underwater vents that would be under these oceans on planets like Enceladus or Europa because of the the friction caused by the orbital pattern of the planets, uh, the Jupiter and Saturn, in those cases that are basically, you know, uh, compressing and expanding those planets back and forth, causing those underwater vents like we have in our deep oceans mm-hmm. uh, as well, which could be, you know, what keeps the water not only liquid but also potentially a habitat for life as well, just like the ones on Earth. And and I would be fascinated to see what an underwater probe on Enceladus would turn up. I can't imagine how cool that would be. And I know you I couldn't know, right? imagine. That would be insane to see that. Totally insane. Yeah, that would be insane. And I I have to agree with you. Yeah, the, the our local solar system, just to find, as you said before, signs, of life outside of Earth. Just yeah. something crawling around, something that you could see, whether it's under a slide in a microscope or whether it's actually crawling around or swimming around or whatever on an ocean, that would be amazing. Uh, and and it would confirm a lot of things right off the bat. It, that would be the story of a lifetime, really.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, confirming uh, we're not alone in the universe, even if it's microbes that are- Even our- if
1: it's microbes, <laughs> yeah. Life can exist elsewhere, yes.
0: Yeah, that would be such a profound discovery. Um, And Kayla, I'm so glad that you brought up Europa and Enceladus, because those are some of my favorite objects as well. Exactly as Tim said, they seem to be ripe for an origin of life with these hydrothermal settings. That is one prime candidate for the geochemical setting where life may have begun on Earth. And we know that at some of the hydrothermal vents at the bottom of earth's ocean the biomass there the the prolific nature of those ecosystems rivals some of the rainforests at the surface of the planet but there's no sunlight right. at all they're feeding off of chemical energy coming from those rocks it's it's absolutely astonishing and searching for life on those worlds, like you said, is going to be no small feat because those oceans are buried under tens of kilometers of ice. But hopefully with the Europa Clipper mission, which Kayla mentioned, um, launching next year in 2024, um, which is a cool Star Trek connection to the 2024 crewed Europa mission that was depicted in the second season of Star Trek Picard. Um, I don't know if the writers maybe took inspiration from the the actual NASA Europa Clipper mission launching next year that would be really cool to know um you know that, that mission will give us uh, an unprecedented glimpse at the uh, surface of this icy world and hopefully give us some um, good indications of habitability and, and maybe even uh signs of life.
1: They're going to fly this oh. Clipper into the one of the vents. Is that right on the bottom? Of, is it going to Europa or Enceladus? The Clipper. It's going
0: to Europa. Um, they want to and get inside is...
1: the under under the ice with this craft. Is that
0: unfortunately they... this one will not. So it's more of a reconnaissance mission. It's going to orbit Jupiter and then do multiple close flybys of Europa. Okay. The reason why it can't go into orbit of Europa itself is because Europa actually exists in this torus of ionized radiation around Jupiter, trapped in Jupiter's magnetosphere. uh, And it wouldn't survive very long there. The spacecraft wouldn't survive very long there. So it actually has to make these wide orbits around Jupiter and make these very quick flybys of Europa. um, And yeah. And there's also Um, the
2: the European Space Agency's JUICE mission, which can I just side note, say it used to stand for, I think it was Jupiter Icy Moons or something, like Jupiter and ice but they, they, they had some really contrived acronym and they dropped the acronym and it's just called JUICE now. And I just kind of love that because, <laughs> because I'm so sick of these acronyms that make absolutely no sense. that are totally Way to go Europeans. We're just calling it JUICE. It's just a JUICE <laughs> <laughs> And lovely. that's launched, that launched not too long ago.
0: nice. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So NASA and the European Space Agency are at it, sending probes into the outer solar system and also to Venus, which, Kayla, you mentioned. Uh, There are three new missions going to Venus, two from NASA, one from ESA. And they should, you know, hopefully lift the veil on that cloud layer that is uh, really shielding us and honestly giving me quite a bit of a headache because one of my projects is to try to understand Venus chemistry. And honestly, nobody understands Venus chemistry. <laughs> it's really yeah. hard. So hopefully these missions can, uh, can give us some more data that will solve Are that. they
1: going, yeah, are they going, I mean, the Russians have been the only ones that have successfully landed really and gotten uh, Venera crafted on there and gotten pictures. Pretty amazing images, actually. Of the surface, albeit brief. Uh, is this new mi- the mission that's going to Venus now, are they going to be landing on the planet or is it cloud? Are they going to be going through the atmosphere and studying more of the atmosphere? Are uh, the ones that are yeah. going there now?
0: I believe two of them are going to be orbiters, but one of them is going to drop a probe through the cloud layers. I don't think it is supposed to land on the surface or spend very much time active on the surface, but it will descend through the atmosphere and make measurements in that atmosphere of the cloud layer and the chemistry going on there uh-huh. um, and hopefully teach us a lot about you know those gases that would be coming from those volcanoes um, and also potentially some of the gases that were implicated in a biosignature in twenty. So namely, phosphine, this gas um, made of phosphorus and hydrogen that um, a team with folks from MIT talking about how this may be a sign of life in Venus's clouds. Um, And that's a very that's a that's a that's a speculative hypothesis. It definitely needs more testing and follow up. And so um, the mission, the missions to Venus will hopefully let us know what is actually going on there. That's excellent. Yeah.
2: And just to give people some idea of how crazy awful the surface of venus is in terms of life for like human life um it's something like eight or nine hundred degrees celsius so hot enough to melt lead and the pressure is so intense that the atmosphere a lot which a lot of it is co2 that gas in the atmosphere actually isn't a gas anymore it's a different state of matter called a supercritical fluid so it's uh, it's like this thick, weird atmosphere. And again, at like 900 degree, I don't know how that is in Fahrenheit, but over a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, it's pretty crazy down there.
1: Yeah, in fact, if you're coming through the atmosphere of Venus, you won't need a parachute darn near because the atmosphere <laughs> is so thick, you'll come down very slowly. It's because of the, what it's made of, which is really weird. But you, you don't need a parachute to land on Venus. It's uh, You're, you're going to be held up by the atmosphere so much. It's crazy. It is a crazy place.
2: Yeah. And because of that, people have talked about the idea of life, like with this phosphine thing as well, but for decades of life living in the cloud layers. Yes. Um, so maybe there's
1: somewhere you know, maybe in the top upper the upper level, some mid mid to upper somewhere in there. Yeah.
2: Then, maybe, maybe there's, there's like a Goldilocks floating zone floating around you. stratigraphically. <laughs> I don't know we perfect just don't temperature
1: know. yeah perfect temperature maybe a little sunlight getting through we don't know yeah,
2: some nutrients some nutrients acting around going around
1: and yeah could be yeah
2: could be. <laughs> there's so much in planetary science for because they're so we're so starved for data that yeah. my favorite new thing like, like i said i was a, mostly an earth scientist in the last four or five years have moved into planetary And my favorite thing is to it, when i start talking about an idea like this with my colleagues we just start going well maybe could be <laughs> maybe <laughs> and that's
3: science
0: there absolutely yeah, I guess we ought to shout out to the um, Species 10C from Star Trek Discovery's fourth season, these uh, creatures who lived in the gas layers of a gas giant atmosphere, uh, which harkens back to um, a paper that Carl Sagan actually wrote in the 1970s. Oh, he called them the floaters and sinkers of Jupiter, speculating that there might be an ecology in Jupiter's atmosphere. Um, and so, you know, the, the jury's out. Maybe that, maybe there is. Uh, maybe there's something floating in Venus's atmosphere all. All we can do is send more missions to go find out.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think uh, it would probably come down to the speed of the winds in Venus's atmosphere. And I don't
0: know, have those winds been
1: clocked in in the atmosphere of Venus? Have they been clocked at a certain speed?
0: Yeah, I don't know ex- exactly the number off the top of my head, but Venus's atmosphere is doing something called super rotating. There is some mysterious force that we still honestly don't quite understand that is blowing those winds at a faster speed uh, than they ought to be. <laughs> so oh, it's oh, just man. yet another mystery about uh, our, our planet Venus. And and this is actually a key point that, you know, I, I think is kind of sobering for the exoplanet studies is that, we still have so much to learn about literally the planet next door, all these mysteries. And we have the the luxury of being able to send a spacecraft to these planets, get to taste their atmospheres and map their surfaces. But for those exoplanets, We'll never be able to, unless we invent warp drive, you know, unless you know, tell tell your engineering friends to, to get on it because uh, we need that warp drive to be able to get up close and personal to these exoplanets. Uh, so where I really think exoplanets give us a leg up in terms of the search for life is their sheer numbers. As you said, Tim, the statistics that exoplanets can give us uh, as we look at them as an ensemble, not necessarily just one planet here and trying to figure out exactly what's going on on that particular planet, but just mapping uh, and surveying the possibilities that could be out there uh, altogether might give us hints at trends in planet formation or looking for trends that might indicate that there is um, you know, habitable processes going on Mm -hmm. uh, elsewhere in the cosmos.
1: Yeah, it's going to be thousands. Yeah, we're going to have to look at thousands and thousands of them to get them not unlike what the Kepler does just to find them. We have to now survey them at that same speed or that same rate, if it's possible to do so. Um, Mm -hmm. It'll make a big difference, you know, and the primary candidates, I mean, they can pick them out, but we got to go through a bunch to get, (laughs) to get it going. Um, It's that simple. And that's just our backyard, you know, basically.
0: Indeed. Uh, Tim, you also mentioned SETI very briefly, so I wanted to let people know about this really cool project that's going on called A Sign in Space. Basically, an artist and um, a couple of, I believe, computer scientists put together a message encoded that only they know. So like two or three people in the entire world know the meaning of this message. And then they asked one of the spacecraft on Mars to beam this message towards Earth as a sort of practice for receiving a message from an intelligent civilization elsewhere. And now universities and scholars and researchers all around the globe are trying to decode this message, not knowing what it means at all, and um, working as hard as they can to try to figure out what it says. And then there's going to be a conference, I believe, in a few months, where they all Reveal what they think the message says, and the people who actually know what it says can check uh, if anybody got it right and interpreted it correctly. So this this is a uh, it ties straight into the Nichelle Nichols Foundation because Uhura was you know the communications officer who had to translate all these alien civilizations uh, languages into messages that the crew on the Enterprise could understand, and yes. we are trying to practice that right now. We don't have the universal translator yet, but uh, we're working our hardest. It's not just the scientific conundrum but also a linguistic and artistic conundrum that we have to battle here uh and and we're doing our first practice run now so that's called a sign in space and i encourage everybody to look that up
1: interesting that are they are they basing it on a basing it on a is it a mathematical message or is it a pictograph type message do you know what they use as a medium as the type of message that is being sent or is that uh
0: that's a good question. Um, so that's one thing that uh, I think the the people who are receiving the message, and I'm not one of them, so I don't know actually what it contains. We'll have to try to figure out. It could be hmm. a pictographic message encoded in math, or some you know uh, series of transformations that we aren't quite sure what what it is yet. But I, I think there there may be some kind of pictographic element to it based on the glimpses that I've seen of online forums <laughs> and things like that but uh wow. but this is an ongoing project yeah so I look forward to seeing what happens
1: interesting I have not heard of that but mm-hmm. I'm gonna keep my ear to the ground and see what happens with that that is a fascinating experiment uh, it really Indeed. is because it's coming from they <laughs> had to create this message being you know people from Earth being human to create a message that a human could not easily translate yet it's a message so uh, you know and it's coming from a human perspective uh, even though it might be something that a cryptographer would have to figure out uh, I would imagine a cryptographer would be the first in line to try to decipher a language um, of any kind because uh, that's what they're they're experts at to find the patterns and things and be able to interpret them but just in general SETI getting a message from another world I can't even imagine how complex or difficult that would be simply because of the the evolution of that civilization and where they've gone and and or how advanced they may be i mean it's possible that some of the civilizations right now out there that are so advanced that they're beyond anything that we would understand that they could be bombarding us with messages every day we would never be able to pick them up or understand them simply because the medium that they're using we have never developed yet and we don't know you know we don't know Uh, how we would interpret these things. We're we're still in radio messages and and, and picking up signals that way and analog or digital. It's just maybe they've gone way beyond all that. You know, maybe it's just light of some type. Maybe it's some kind of radioactive energy, something that we're not able to interpret or read. And who knows? That's, oh man, it's crazy. Maybe they're communicating through time. You know, they're that far advanced, you see. We would never be able to interpret that.
0: It's there hard. It's hard to imagine, right? It's hard Very to hard. imagine. Um, Very hard. Just a few few decades ago, I think it would have been hard to imagine the kinds of technology that we carry around in our pockets every day today. Um, Correct. Except. You know, that's where science fiction comes into play, because Star Trek is very famous for being forward looking, predicting things, technologies yes. that we now have. Um, and so I think this is why, uh, you know, as scientists, it's it's always very useful to take a break from science and go and read a little science fiction or watch a little Star Trek, because that helps sure. us expand our minds and open our minds sure to possibilities does. that we sure have imagined yet.
1: Absolutely. Agreed. 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 Yeah. yeah,
2: I think a lot of people don't realize how creative, how much creativity there is in being a scientist. Um, it's a different kind of creativity, you know, than being in the entertainment industry, for example, but it's using a part of your brain. And then, like you said, expanding the horizon beyond the box and, you know, interpreting data is really the the part that, it, that takes a trained scientist. So you can... You know collect data, you need to learn how to do the methods properly, but really that interpretation of understanding of what what are these signals telling us, you know, as a geologist we we read the the layers of the earth like like the pages of a book. And it's it's all there, the earth is telling us, you know, all of these things other planets are telling us all of these things we just have to know how to read it and it really takes a level of creativity to be able to open your mind to what the possible you know so that's you know this is another thing to think of translating it's like a translation but in a whole different parameter space instead of in language and and digits you're thinking in you know multi component chemistry space so yeah it's really uh you can think of it like being a translator for the earth and for the other planets
1: yeah and what if the the the, the scientist has to ask the question what if before oh, considering the data or anything else it's it's the creative i think comes from the what if, why is this, and what if, what if I look at it this way? What if I look at it that way? What if this thing that's happening here is actually this or that? And then you have to go find the data to support the, you know, the concept. But you have to imagine what that could be. I mean, how come, why is it doing this, and why is it behaving like that? Well, maybe it's because of this, or maybe it's because of that. And that that's not, you know, you're not basing that on any data right there. As you start out, you're basing it on imagining what this could possibly be. And then, yeah. going to, then you have to go prove it. Yes, of course. Yeah.
2: No, absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, you're just describing the first two steps of the scientific method, right? Observation yeah. and then hypothesis. Uh,
0: hypothesis, right. Yeah. And I'm sure that is exactly what's going through the minds of the writers of Star Trek. You know, that what if question. That's almost a yeah. starting point for any science fiction Absolutely.
1: Narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. Taking a concept, a scientific concept that we're already familiar with and turning it on its head whether it's time travel or gravity or whatever else might be uh, communication, uh, alien species on other planets or other worlds, the culture of these civilizations just take it and go, what if, what if what we assume is ABC is not ABC. And we find out later on simply because of the evolutionary track of this particular race, their culture has turned out to be what it is, uh, due to, uh, their civilization or due to physical, uh, anomalies and on their planet, et cetera, whatever it might be. And that what if just turns everything on its head completely upside down. I know we've done it on Trek a number of times. Uh, and to me, that's, I agree that, that it's still my favorite, generally my favorite genre because of the, the unlimited sort of, uh, window of imagination that you can pursue with science fiction. You can step, like Kayla said, out of the box, you step out of the box to tell the stories. You don't have to be in the box. You can come at it from any direction or any angle and turn it sideways like this. And all of a sudden that whole thing looks very different than what you thought it was. And that you can't beat that with a stick. I mean, that's that to me is what, that gets me up in the morning or at 12 o'clock noon, whichever comes first.
3: <laughs> keeps you up at night, right?
1: It <laughs> keeps me up at night, yes. There you go.
3: Yeah. I was just well, thinking in terms of that sign in space, and the ways that people communicate in, in my brain, I'm thinking music and math, you know, is supposed to be universal. So I'm imagining that that code must be maybe in some kind of mathematical equation or maybe music. Music.
2: I hope it's a Dolly Parton song. <laughs> Wouldn't
3: that be great? <laughs>
2: Nine to five, baby.
1: Yeah that's great that's not a bad that's interesting yes what if it was music some kind of a melody that 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 can be translated that would be very interesting and if an alien race you know communicated through music and not through this sort of speech that we have today but it was done through some kind of sounds and just melodies Oh man i can can't imagine uh but yeah you have it, you have, it's a great point point. and how would you yeah. interpret it you know
0: It's almost like we need an astronomer, musician, actor who's played an alien (laughs) to to help us figure out what they're saying.
1: (laughs) Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. (laughs) I look forward to seeing the results of that experiment. I really am. I'm very curious about it because I've always thought of what it would be, you know, how complicated it would be to interpret another civilization's language uh, signals or signs or whatever it is they would broadcast. It would be fascinating. If you were standing right across from them, I mean, how would that how would that possibly be? Not only, you know, how they would look and appear to you, but, you know, how would you possibly, how would you begin that whole process? I, I don't know. It's crazy. I think uh, one of the stories I read a long time ago that, that that this actually happened where they the people on Earth had to try to figure out how to communicate with this object that had landed right in the middle of the city, uh, a city block, and it was clearly extraterrestrial. But they wanted to try to communicate with it. So they started with the uh, using the elements, uh, the basic elements, t- elemental tables and starting with the, the first element of the table. And then the response was the next element of the table. And then they went back and forth. So they established at least the very rudimentary sort of understanding based on the, the, the simple elements that we would find from, you know, in the universe, on the planets and things like that. So it's interesting. It worked out pretty well. But yeah i mean what would you use as a as a template as a basis crazy man not my job
2: yeah.
1: i'll read about it i'll read about it when it's done <laughs> yeah. well,
2: and it's cool it seems like the effort is sort of the opposite of the golden record that went that carl sagan helped develop that went out on the on the voyager yeah probe. yeah i think there they use various things like that i don't know if they would use elements but i think you know prime numbers yeah I maybe was in there. So it's like these certain mathematical constants that if you are sufficiently advanced to, especially to be spacefaring, sure pi, for example.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mathematics, you would have to be, the assumption is if it's a technologically civilization that they would evolve along a similar track as ours. They are tool makers. You have to be able mm-hmm. to make tools. And so we, we would assume that um, whatever their path was, whatever speed at which their evolutionary path took, that they would start out, obviously is microbial and eventually evolved into something uh, and, and beings that were intelligence. And once they reached the intelligence level of being able to communicate with each other and to organize and to make mm-hmm. tools, uh, once you get to that state, now we're, now we're off and running. And if they could develop that technology it would logically develop along a similar path. And then eventually they would discover a radio and, and things like that. And, um, potentially as it becomes space over time, I think they just don't it doesn't go from microbial to spacefaring like overnight i think there's yeah. a, there's a path that has to be followed and so it it, it stands for reason that that communication would be would be uh something in terms of another civilization that's maybe slightly uh, ahead of ours if not along same the same point in time but maybe a little farther ahead we'll at least have a background in that and could understand it And it'll be like that i think for the next few hundred years it should be pretty close to that so Interesting, it'll It'll be interesting to see. Um, so really cool.
3: I've always wondered about UFOs and now more and more people are talking about UFOs and sightings and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, but based on everything that I'm hearing from you, I'm starting to wonder if that's really true. Are we at that point? Do you think that there's civilizations out there that are more advanced? It doesn't sound like it from what I have learned yeah. today.
1: Wow, it's uh well that would be the probably the planetary scientist sort of point of view on on some of that. You know, mine I you know, I, I'm not a professional. I don't have a degree in, in those sciences. I only have I could only have an opinion about them and whether they uh, the UAPs that have been witnessed, viewed, and reported on by uh, pretty credible sightings and radar backups. I mean, there may be something happening. Um, Mishukaku is one of my favorite physicists, and he said, you know, you might have to keep an open mind. Here's my theory on all of that. Because the the hard physicists, the people who study physics and stuff, they generally aren't going to comment on things like that because there's not a physical, as a scientist requires, physical evidence and proof that's definitive. Um, But here's my take on that columbus could not get to the moon based on the technology that existed at his time wind he could not get to the moon on that we now can get to the moon so a million years from now what would the physics be what secrets would we unlock technologically to be able to do just about anything perhaps travel in time perhaps travel interdimensionally Uh, we're studying multiple dimensions and universes right now and every time we've studied stuff in science most of the time it's come true so one has to wonder if there was a civilization able to traverse time and space and as as a machine planet would send out robots just like we're sending out probes to other worlds in our solar system right now what would keep them from sending out probes through time through space through whatever it might be to study other worlds all automated who knows like i said you know, the ancient Egyptians couldn't go to the moon. Columbus couldn't go to the moon. We can go to the moon. And it's just a matter of to me of relativity, if you will mind using that word, it's a relative situation. A million years from now, five hundred thousand years from now, what will the capabilities of humankind be? We won't even be humankind five hundred thousand years from now, will we? Probably not. We will have evolved. And what we have evolved into would would that allow us to travel? through time and space or to warp space or whatever it might be the big place out there man is a whole lot of space going on so it's i fascinating. don't
0: know i yeah. think that is a wonderfully um, optimistic and mind expanding place to end this panel Thank you all for joining us on Hailing Frequencies Open, presented by the Nichelle Nichols Foundation. If you enjoyed today's discussion or just feel like empowering young women and people of color to explore space for themselves, consider donating to the Nichelle Nichols Foundation. One of the many cool things that we're doing is raising funds to send young women to space camp next summer in Huntsville, Alabama. If you're interested in that, again, please donate. You can find out more information about the foundation at Foundation. I want to give a sincere thank you once again to Tim Ross and Dr. Kayla out for joining me today on Hailing Frequencies Open. I'm Mike Wong, and until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs> and
3: I would just like to thank say, <laughs> have a safe and happy Fourth of July weekend.
1: Same, everyone. Thank yes, you. Absolutely. Nice meeting you all. Thank you. Take thank care. You.